EK Publishing Media presents the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm recording this two weeks from Thanksgiving, so I kind of wish I could enjoy that with you. Anyway, uh, this is just a quick little bonus episode for everyone, just so you guys have a little something to chew on until I get the rest of the next episode done. And uh, see you at the end. Episode 12, The Missing Hours. The morning of a bad day always feels like every other morning. A few details might be different, you're running late, the outfit you thought you were going to wear just won't work, the coffee grounds spilled everywhere in the freezer which takes extra long to clean for whatever reason. All of those things happen, and they might coincidentally happen on a day when the shit truly hits the fan. Kara Moyers would never have guessed how bad it would be on the morning of November 26th, 2019. It was one of those mornings where it starts to rain when you leave your house and get into your car. It gets worse as you're driving, and then it's pretty much clear when you get to where you're going. All of these minor inconveniences plagued Kara as she sat in morning traffic with the windshield wipers streaking the raindrops across the yellow and red lights of the cars around her. She took a sip of coffee from her thermos and tasted the dregs of her coffee grounds, checking another box that she had failed to execute one of her morning rituals correctly. She was 22 years old, but had four years of machine shop experience. She had perfected the art of soldering the inner workings of radiators at a shop on the edge of town. It was the North Texas Metroplex, so the edge of town meant the currently grassy no-man's land that stood between five other cities. This area was at the edge of Fort Worth between Arlington and Hearst. As Kara drove her 2011 white Toyota Camry with a big dent in the passenger door down Hanley Etterville Drive toward the machine shop, she passed by fields that had been untamed. Fields that would be covered and paved with strip malls, restaurants, and apartment complexes in the coming decades. For now, it was fox and rabbit breeding grounds, the perfect level of empty to avoid suspicion or even the occasional police officer. No one ventured out this way unless they were driving to or from Arlington and wanted to dodge the traffic buildup on 820. That, or you worked out here. Kara drove past her machine shop and pulled into the parking lot of a now-abandoned daycare. Little cowboys and cowgirls had gone under in the early 2000s. Kara's boss had offered to buy up the land, mostly so he could bulldoze the building and use the parking lot exclusively, but old Patrick Coates was sitting on it, probably waiting for the real estate area to crop up like corn before harvest season so he could cash in when the market was in his favor. That was probably a decade away from even being possible, but old man Coates wouldn't be moved. The front parking lot was large enough for a dozen cars and was considered public property by the city of Fort Worth, so she and a few other employees parked there to leave space at their work next door for customers. She got out of her car and went outside. The sun was shining through the eastern cloud cover as she hurried across the moist grass to the shop door. Kara was five minutes late, which wouldn't have been such a big deal except Mr. Clark told her not to be late again. To her good fortune, he hadn't arrived yet and none of the other employees disliked her enough to rat her out. She was in the clear. She dropped her things by her bench, a place she'd had to fight for amidst the sweaty, bumping forearms of the older workers who both scolded and taught her everything she knew. She hurriedly put her food away in the kitchen before getting on to work. For the next four hours, the building was full of solder and flux fumes. The windows were open and the ventilators were at full blast as she and a dozen others did the simple task of soldering new and old radiator parts together. It was dull work, but she was able to listen to music at her leisure. Using a flux bottle, Kara allowed the heat to guide the solder into the little nooks and crannies they were supposed to fill with liquid metal. She burned her fingers more than usual, and a spurt of solder scalded her wrist just past the cuff of her work glove. Dropping the flux bottle into her pocket, she hurried over to the wash tub to quench the wound quickly. It was one of those days. The lunch hour came, and everyone filed out to go to their respective corners or fast food joints. 
She overheard someone mention that Mr. Clark wouldn't be in that day, and she breathed a sigh of relief. Kara warmed up her pizza from the night before that she'd brought from home. She'd made it herself, and it was vegan with those oddly textured vegan sausage slices spread over the top like black pepperonis. Even having made the pizza herself, she knew it would taste like plastic. Maybe it was the microwave, maybe the vegan cheese that was probably a little more than biodegradable plastic anyway. The taste would only achieve a fifth of the flavor it had held when it was freshly out of the oven 16 hours prior. She grabbed a bottle of water, loaded up her pizza and her bag, and then went out to her car. Pulling her car out of its parking space, she pulled into the side alley of the abandoned daycare center and into the sunny deserted backyard of the building. Half of the back fence had fallen down, showing a pleasant green field that extended to a large copse of trees preceding a lazy part of the west fork of the Trinity River. Beyond that was another highway on the edge of her vision, a constant reminder that you were still in the city even when it felt like you were in the country. Kara parked back here every day so she could eat her lunch in silence while watching Netflix or YouTube. She was still within range of the Wi-Fi from the shop next door while a weather-beaten but solid wooden fence kept her hidden from view of her coworkers. After eating, she would kick her seat back and take a nap. The occasional air compressor spray from the side yard of the shop would pierce her bubble of solitude, but soothing rainstorm sounds at max volume would drown out that noise. She watched part of a documentary while devouring her pizza, plastic and all. The documentary was about the Invisible Children charity that had shed light on the goings-on of Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army in Central Africa, specifically Uganda. It was just getting good when Kara forced herself to turn it off so she could get an even 25 minutes of sleep before getting back to work under the hour. Rolling the driver window down, she pulled the lever to drop the seat back as far as it would go. She stared at the gray fabric interior ceiling of her Camry for a few seconds. She put in her headphones, set the alarm for 26 minutes, one minute for decompression, and tuned YouTube to her stormy weather track. She pulled her black grease-covered Boston Red Sox cap down over her eyes to block the sun and 80% of the rest of the light. There, she folded her hands on her stomach. She wore a brown flannel shirt that was unbuttoned fashionably over her turquoise undershirt that tucked into her blue jeans. Her mind faded with the sound of the rain in her ears, encompassing her thoughts and emotions to a meditative white noise. Her mouth crept open and her throat felt dry because she was snoring unseemly from her comfortable position in the car. All sense of time and worry about responsibility and effort had eroded to the relaxing rainfall that consumed her senses. She didn't dream, but fell into a pure, serene level of unconsciousness. Thump. Something heavy. Something metallic. Something cold. She registered all of this in a split second before her eyes flew open. Kara saw the nozzle of the gun pressed against her chest. She didn't know what kind of gun it was and didn't care. The fear spread through her insides with the quick acceleration of her heartbeat. Her eyes traveled up the forearm that was covered with short golden hair resting on the window ledge. She unplugged her earphones as she looked to the face of a man with wavy blonde hair and dark eyes. He wore a denim shirt with the sleeves rolled up. A golden cross dangled from his neck as he leaned down to look at her. Now, don't freak out and don't scream, he said, the way an instructor might begin explaining a careful process. I just want you to know I mean business. Kara was too stunned and horrified to speak. She had never faced down a direct threat with a firearm before. People think they know what to do when faced with the situation. Kara herself might have speculated how she would grab his arm and break it over the window ledge like they do in the movies, but she had no power to move or even speak at all whatsoever. The idea of taking action had deserted her so completely that at no point during the entire confrontation did it ever occur to her that she could. Instead of saying anything in her silence, the man slowly withdrew the pistol and held it at a relaxed position in his right hand. See, we're cool, right? 
I just wanted to make sure you didn't start screaming at me. Privacy. She had wanted privacy for peace, quiet, and comfort without thinking about the other side of privacy. She mentally berated herself for allowing this to happen, for almost willingly putting herself in the fox's den. He had her at his mercy and he could do whatever he wanted. What do you want? Kara asked. The man closed his eyes and held up a hand. Before I get into it, I just want you to know that I'm a family man. I got two daughters just like you, both younger, both just as pretty. He laughed with a grin that made her uneasy. I just want to... He rolled his wrist, trying to find the right word. Preface this whole thing with making sure that you understand that this is... This is just a huge misunderstanding. My name's Brian Wilson, attorney at law, father of two, and I'm a weekly church-going, God-fearing Texan, and God blessed proud at that. I just got one teensy little problem that I need help with. Kara continued staring at him, unable to speak as he slowly paced next to the driver's window. He turned back around, massaging his cheeks and chin that were covered with several days of beard stubble. So I'll just come out with it, the man continued in his rich Texan accent. This federal FBI agent was messing with one of my daughters. She's 16, and this son of a bitch was messaging her on Facebook, texting her, following her around after school, and God knows what else. I found out, and last night, I caught him sneaking around my house, talking to my daughter through her window. He waved and took a deep breath as he shook his head. Karen narrowed her eyes as he continued pacing and massaging his temples with both hands. I don't know what happened, man. I just don't know what happened. He continued shaking his head as he dropped to his haunches. She kept her eyes on the gun. She thought she might be able to start the car and back out of the alley, but her keys were in her pocket. Her phone was still spewing rainstorm sounds from the headphones idly. He got back up and ran his hand over his chin and cheeks once more. Anyway, the guy's in the trunk of my car now, and I need a ride. He pursed his lips matter-of-factly and stared at her. Is he... alive? Kara swallowed hard. Yeah, no. He smiled that unsettling smile again. I don't... I'm not asking, Brian said firmly, raising the gun again. Your phone, pretty girl, he beckoned at her. His story had set her at ease to a degree, but the fear spiked again at that sudden demand. Kara was so caught off guard by the whole thing, she didn't even register that he had just given a direct order. Your phone, he said loudly before raising the pistol to point at her again. Just toss it out here. Kara shakily grabbed the phone and killed YouTube. Now, he yelled that time. Kara cupped it in both hands and tossed her phone out the window. He stepped out of the way as it cartwheeled into the industrial aluminum wall of the daycare center. Pop the trunk and get out. He waved the pistol between her and the trunk of the car. Carrie did as instructed as he picked up her phone. He walked up to the fence next to where part of it had fallen down and then heaved the phone as hard as he could into the field beyond. Kara's heart sank to watch it sail into the vast field of tall grass and brush. She tried to calculate and commit to memory the vague area where it had fallen, but it might take hours to recover if she were able to return. Nothing about this felt right. Even the story of his daughters felt contrived, but she was in no position to outwardly question his motives. Brian got in a red Ford Focus that was parked behind her and pulled it alongside her car so it wasn't as noticeable from the street. He popped the trunk of the vehicle to expose a pair of haphazardly folded loafers folded over the figure of a body within a tan carpet. Blood had stained through the carpet around the middle of the bodily form. Kara's face went white and all the strength left her as Brian got out and looked between her and the body. Well, come on. We just got an afternoon of driving ahead of us. Quick burial, and then we'll come back right as rain. We? Kara asked. Sure enough, I ain't digging this Jagoff's hole alone. I have work to do, Kara shook her head. People will ask where I am. I don't give a damn. Now help me move this moron into your trunk. Brian stuffed the pistol in the back waistband of his jeans. 
He grabbed hold of the upper torso that was wrapped in the carpet as Kayla shakily went over to grab the legs and loafers of the agent. What she was doing now was a crime, aiding and abetting a criminal act. He still had that gun, so she had little choice in the matter. In an action movie, she might have been able to tackle him to the ground, maybe toss the gun over the fence where he had tossed her phone, but the time never felt right. There was no defining moment, no clear sign that action could be taken. The weight of the agent's body caught her off guard. Several muscles in her lower back went into overdrive to consolidate for the abrupt burden that her arms, shoulders, and chest couldn't handle. The two barely made it to her trunk and lifted the body inside before the body could shift in the carpet out of her control. She and Brian both took a deep breath and stepped back. The body didn't fit any better in the trunk of her Camry than it did in his focus. Brian looked around to make sure no one saw anything before resting a hand on the trunk lid to lower it closed. Woo-wee, all right, all right, let's load up and get done. He tapped the trunk of her car and walked around to the passenger door. Why don't you just take the car? Kara asked. You think I like manual labor? You think I want this bitch snooping around my house? Nuh-uh. None of this was part of my plan, and now like some quantum mystery, you gotta be involved. Sorry it had to be you, but it had to be you. He shrugged and opened the passenger door before sliding inside her Camry. Kara winced. Freedom called to her as she was about to dart, when she heard the click of the pistol and saw the nozzle aiming at her through the driver's window. Try your luck, sweetheart. I'm sure you're fast, but I'm pretty damn fast with this thing, he said in his thick southern drawl. Come on, get in so we can get this work done and come home. She slowly got inside the Camry driver's side. For a frantic moment, she couldn't find her keys. She repeatedly patted pockets before Brian held up the keys. Looking for these? You left them in the passenger seat. Kara swallowed and took them. She slid the key into the ignition and slowly backed down the grassy side avenue of the building. An icy fear made everything crisp in her vision, but surreal. She suddenly felt hot and turned on the air conditioner. Her hand was shaking as she returned it to the steering wheel. Backing into the parking lot in front of the building, there were three other vehicles belonging to employees from her shop parked there, but they were all empty. Now would be the time for someone to come back from lunch and at least see her with a strange man in her car, but no one came. No one witnessed her leaving the parking lot or driving down the bumpy road to Hanley Etterville. Brian told her to turn right and she did. From there, she was lost in the ether of other cars and drivers. Brian turned off the air conditioner and directed her to turn left at the light, then right onto the freeway. Take 20 west after that, then we'll be on our way. Way 20! You're at least 20, right? Brian slapped Kara's leg with the back of his hand. The strike was hard and left a resonating pain that hurt for at least a minute after. I'm 22, Kara said, unable to hide the quaver in her voice. Relax, I ain't gonna hurt you. Brian looked out the window with a grin. How could a person smile so easily with the gravity of the situation weighing so heavily on them? He was yelling at her five minutes prior and now all seemed fine. Kara wondered if he had bipolar disorder or some other equally serious medical condition that might have set off this episode Brian was having. Just seeing that grin while being able to vaguely smell the already turning corpse in the trunk of the car made her wonder just how there Brian was. Being cool is one thing, but being relaxed, almost playful, that was a red flag that not all was okay through the eyes of Brian. She remembered Life of Brian, that Monty Python movie that was just as funny as the Holy Grail but wasn't hyped so much. She tried to remember the plot but couldn't due to how much alcohol had been consumed between her and her roommates that night in college. Her brain buzzed back to the Brian in the car. She wanted to think he was crazy, but based on his train of thought and the way he plotted his actions, she couldn't give him that. Crazy people are just crazy. It's hard to understand the difference between crazy and psychopathic. Kara was able to see the spectrum of crazy when she spent eight months when she was 18 bombing at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. 
Every day she would ride the subway to her classes, half hungover or running on an hour or less of sleep. There's really not much difference between being hungover and being sleep-deprived. Usually the two went hand-in-hand for Kara. But during those subway rides, usually from school in the later nefarious hours of the evening, she would see crazy in all its glory. The mentally unstable homeless would shout at her, everyone else, and no one as they commuted from one stop to the next. It had become a staple in New York, not really an attraction, but something tourists and native city dwellers dealt with silently on their own or ignored. It was easier and best to ignore the crazy in all its colors as it began to emerge in the rapid chatter of an unkempt individual that couldn't be comfortable unless they were moving about sporadically. All the while, you're just short of praying that your stop comes sooner or they get off as soon as possible, and God please don't let them get off at my stop. She found the musicians who channeled their crazy through musical instruments far more interesting than those who ranted and raved at demons and ghosts, but they were just as crazy. Brian was not that kind of crazy. He was collected in a time when he should have been losing it. Kara couldn't imagine having killed someone and being as cool as Brian. They must have driven for 30 minutes before Brian ordered her to take the next exit and pull into the Home Depot there in Weatherford. She noticed how overcast it was this far out west. Can't go digging a hole without shovels. Come on, little lady. The two got out and Kara followed Brian into the Home Depot. They grabbed two shovels, two bottles of water, and some beef jerky before they got in one of the many lines available. Brian paid with cash and received $2.60 back from the middle-aged clerk at the counter. Let's go dig up that tree in the backyard, Fran. Brian chuckled and handed Kara a shovel. The clerk lady merely smiled and waved at them as they left. Brian tossed the receipt in the trash on the way out before they returned to the car. Good going in there. Maybe we'll get through all this without the feds even knowing what happened. Kara swallowed hard as Brian directed her back onto the freeway where they continued driving. Brian clicked off the air conditioner. A minute later, Kara cracked the window. She couldn't stand the circulating air of the body in the trunk. You never did mention your name, unless you want me to keep calling you Pretty Girl, Brian said. My name is Kara, and I don't like being called Pretty Girl, she said defiantly. All right, all right, you're one of those empowerment types, he said, looking out the window at the increasingly desolate Texas countryside spreading to both horizons parallel to the freeway. What's that supposed to mean, empowerment types, she asked. You know, the old school feminists, he said with a smug grin like he knew shit. Kara expected he would mansplain her own position next, and he didn't fail to deliver. You guys were burning your bras when I was a kid, but now it's all about LGTBQIA rights. Seemed to me you guys got left out in the cold on that whole intersectional hierarchy. But what about you? You into men or women? That's none of your business, Kara shook her head. Come on, Brian whined. We got a long drive to West Texas. It'll go faster if we shoot the shit. I didn't ask for this, said Kara. I'm basically your hostage. I have nothing to say to you about anything. Suit yourself, Brian flared his fingers. It's women, isn't it? You're one of those butch types based on the shape of your fingers. Screw off, Kara glared straight ahead. Brian grinned, satisfied that he'd gotten a rise out of her, and then stretched in the passenger seat. Don't think I don't empathize. It's a crazy political environment we live in nowadays with the alt-right, alt-left, left-right, upside-down, and backwards fiasco that we're living through. I get it, he laughed. I'm not really in with the political stuff. I don't keep up with it, Kara said. You should. You newbies are the ones who'll be taking it in the tail in 20, 30 years from now, Brian shook his head. All this free health care, free college, credit forgiveness bullshit is going to come back and bite you in the ass. I usually just watch Netflix. Kara rolled her shoulder, not wanting to get into a heated political debate with someone who basically had a gun on her. The sky overhead was growing dimmer as the clouds became grayer. Oh yeah? What kind of shows you like? Brian asked. All of it, Kara said. 
I think I've seen everything on Netflix. Wow, too bad there's no achievement for that, Ryan remarked. You said you have two daughters. What are their names? Kara said, ignoring the dig he had made. Shannon and Josephine, he replied quickly, glancing at Kara. Fifteen and seventeen. I got no chance, right? I know the way you ladies run the world. He laughed again. What do you want to do after we finish burying this guy? Kara asked. Grab a burger, go home, sleep, I don't know, you got something in mind? No, I just have a thing this evening, said Kara. I don't really mind missing it, but my friends will wonder where I am. Don't worry, I'll have you back before seven unless there's traffic, Brian said. They drove in silence for what felt like a long time. Kara occasionally looked over to see if Brian was sleeping, but he never was. It was eerie how quiet he could be for so long. She noticed signs for Putnam, Baird, and Clyde. Eventually their course would take them to Abilene, Odessa, and eventually to El Paso or anywhere in North New Mexico. They were somewhere in Cisco, Texas when Brian told her to exit onto the obscure exit of 330 ahead. She followed his instruction and went over the bridge south to a road that transformed into a dirt farm road. Leafless skeletal trees lined the road south beneath the darkened winter sky. It was 3.30 in the afternoon according to the clock on her dashboard. It felt more like 5 or 6. They drove past a trailer on their left. A large Ford truck sat out front with a boat hitched to its tail. They continued up the incline until Brian told her to slow down next to a large green gate on the side of the road. A sign reading no trespassing was mounted upon the gate above the latch. Brian got out and unlocked and opened the gate with a key from his pocket. He waved her in and closed the gate after she had driven through the threshold to the field of nothing that spanned their view ahead. He got back into the passenger seat and told her to continue up the path. They drove until the dirt road curved, but Brian directed her to keep going. She drove around brush and rocks until Brian nodded. I think that's far enough, he said. Kara came to a stop in the middle of the empty field of Texas brush and killed the engine. The cloudy sky above seemed almost blood red in the afternoon, like something out of a vampire film. But this was worse than a vampire film. Kara already knew the likelihood of her escaping this field alive was very low. She was not stupid, plus she had watched countless true crime documentaries on Netflix. She already knew how this played out, but she also had a small edge that Brian didn't know about. Before turning onto the dirt road, Brian might have shot her if she hadn't complied with his every instruction. But out here in the no-man's land of empty Texas, where no one could hear her scream, he wasn't going to shoot her. Whether this was his first abduction or his twentieth, he had her where she was at his whim and mercy. How did she know that he wouldn't shoot her? Because he had brought her out here for a reason. He brought her out here to take her body from her, and then end her life. Granted, all of this was hypothesis, but Kara understood the hunger some men possessed, the control they needed to exert in order to exist for another week or month until the hunger took them again. They were like wolves, picking off the straggling sheep from the herd. Is that what had happened to her? Had she wandered to her own peaceful place only to be snatched up like an unsuspecting sheep? The two got out of the Camry and opened the trunk of the car. They each took their side of the carpeted corpse and hoisted the body out onto the dusty ground. Kara grabbed both shovels and handed one to Brian. The air was soundless save for the cars echoing from the freeway far in the distance. Brian dropped the blade of the shovel into the ground and pried up the dirt. Kara followed his motion. The two began the hole that would bury an FBI agent that Kara didn't know. Maybe he had been spying on Brian's daughter, and maybe Brian had no intention of killing her. She could hope, but why wouldn't he? Wolves always took what they wanted. Brian had no reason to let her go. The metaphor of her circumstance morphed into that of the fox and the scorpion story, that tale where the fox ferries the scorpion across the river only for the scorpion to stab the fox halfway across. When the fox asks why, the scorpion shrugs and says, I'm a scorpion, what did you expect? 
Kerry could ask why after all of this was over, but Brian could reliably shrug his shoulders and say, I'm a man, what did you expect? Kara felt a raindrop on her shoulder and then on her forehead as she shoveled dirt into the pile she had created alongside the hole she and Brian had dug so far. The two chucked dirt to both sides as it grew deeper and deeper. She took off her flannel shirt and wrapped it about her waist as she continued digging. Brian wiped his brow and threw his shovel before bending over to pick up a massive rock he had unearthed that was in their way. He grabbed his shovel again and moved more dirt. Half an hour later, after the rain had avoided them, settling on a persistent dewy drizzle instead, the hole was deep enough to stand in but not quite taller than the top of Kara's eye level. She was only 5 feet 9 inches tall, so the hole was nearing 6 feet. Kara felt a twinge of horror in her chest, the idea that she had just dug her own 6 foot deep grave. She was standing in it, looking at the dark clay earth. The only difference between her and a corpse was that she was still breathing. Nice, very nice. Brian took a deep breath and clambered up the makeshift incline he had dug to get out. Let's turn this guy into plant seed, bury him, and you and me are on our way. He held out his muddy hand and Kara took it. Brian hauled her out of the hole. They grabbed the body in the carpet and carried it a ways toward the pit they had dug. Kara thought the agent might be rousing from being knocked out as the body began to move, but he suddenly unraveled from the carpet and slipped to his side with his face craned awkwardly into the inner crook of his elbow. Hey, look at that, he's dabbing. Brian laughed before a sudden inhalation of spittle caused him to begin coughing profusely. He turned and went back to the Camry to grab a bottle of water. Kara dropped to her haunches over the body to roll him back into the carpet. That's when she saw his smartwatch. Around his fat, hairy wrist was a black smartwatch that flashed to life when Kara pulled his arm back. She thought it was odd because instead of a watch face or heart rate, whatever you would expect to see on a wrist-based device, she saw text. It disappeared before she could look at it again. Tapping the watch face a number of times, it illuminated once more to display a large text box that read, You were right, Harry. That asshole is RTK. Get out of there and get back ASAP. What you got there? Brian asked. Kara looked up to see him looking at her. Just noticed he had one of those cool smartwatches, Kara replied. Daggum. Brian stepped over his body to examine the watch. This damn interconnected webula world. Yeah, Kara laughed nervously, watching Brian read the text. A gust of heavy drizzle fanned between them, pushing Brian into a forward lean as he looked up at Kara over the watch. His eyes had gone dark. What's the verdict on whether this thing can be tracked? Brian asked, ignoring the message. Kara fought the strong urge to run, knowing that would give her up. She knew what RTK stood for, who the agents were referring to, and now she knew her true fate at the end of this. Brian was the RTK killer, a notorious rapist and murderer who had claimed at least 15 women. This FBI agent had figured him out, but got too close. Brian killed him, and here Brian was, enlisting Kara's help in cleaning up the mess. Throughout this entire event, Brian was keeping his monster caged. It was growling and raging under his skin, ready to rip free and dig in, but not yet, not yet, soon. Because he was in his early 40s, he wasn't young anymore. He'd been out of the game for a decade. RTK's last victim was in 2009, back when cellular smart devices weren't so easily trackable. Brian had seen the light years ago and decided to go dormant, go on a permanent hiatus from the hunt. It was too risky and he was too old to be taking risks. But here he was, taking a giant risk, one that had shown light on the twisted monster that curled beneath his exterior facade. He would probably be caught, maybe even tonight. The only problem was that Kara would be dead before then. She would be RTK's final victim, because that's what this was. Driving that Ford Focus with Henry's body stinking up the trunk, Brian searched for a ride that wouldn't expose his identity any further. 
He didn't know the feds were on to him, but with Henry sniffing out the tiniest scent he had left behind years prior, he had taken whatever precautions he could to avoid being flagged by any and all law enforcement. That's when he saw Kara go out to her car while he was driving by. He'd formulated a plan and waited for her to sleep. Once she did, it was all too easy from there. Brian crouched over a large stone with a rock in hand. He placed the watch on the stone and smashed it several times. Once the watch was definitely not working anymore, he got up inside, withdrawing the pistol from the waistband of his pants. He kept his back to her as the wind blew the tail of his denim shirt around his hip. He looked up to the cloudy twilight heavens. You know, I do have two daughters, he said. Married, got lots going for me. That's what makes this whole thing pretty unfortunate. A flicker of lightning crackled through the eastern sky behind him. Why don't we just... Kara swallowed hard. Finish dumping this guy, grab a hamburger, and this'll just be our little secret. Brian nodded repeatedly until he wasn't nodding. He was shaking his head back and forth as he turned around and pointed the gun at her. They already know who I am. Probably have evidence. Too late for me, sweetheart, which means it's too late for you. Probably won't be able to get any in prison for a while, so I'll try to make this quick. Take off your clothes. His free hand crept to his belt buckle. Her edge in this whole ordeal suddenly flashed like a warning light for her attention. Yeah, he was holding the gun on her, but he wasn't going to shoot her. She had known that ever since they entered the dusty, vacant Texas field. He was a sociopath, but not a psychopath. The difference was right here in the pudding. He hadn't shot her yet, and he wasn't going to shoot her because then she would be spoiled. It wasn't in the RTK play-by-play handbook. You didn't start with K because you couldn't R and T if the victim had been K'd. That was the only advantage she had out here. The knowledge that killing her would be the last thing he would do to her. And it was absolutely enough. Brian thumbed the hammer. I gave you an order. As he had been talking to her, Kara had kept her hands in her jacket pockets. It wasn't a thick jacket. Not ideal apparel for digging a grave in the middle of the rain in November. But it was good enough for walking to and from the car at work. Her hand had become sweaty around the flux bottle that rested in her pocket. She'd forgotten about it until earlier while she was digging as it bounced around in her side with every motion. She hooked her thumb under the cap and prepared herself as she lowered her eyes and face to the ground. Kara made like she was about to take off her jacket when she rushed him. She looked down the barrel, terrified he would shoot, but knowing to do so would spoil his final victim. Flicking the lid off the flux bottle, she spilled half of it inside her jacket but the other half, the half that mattered, sprayed with her thrust around Brian's outstretched arm into his eyes and nose. His immediate intake of breath sucked the acidic liquid into his nose and mouth as Kara tackled him over Henry's body. The two went soaring into the grave. Brian's back gave an audible pop as his back smashed into a crooked root under both his and her weight. He was still choking to breathe while grappling a fistful of Kara's turquoise undershirt and bra. Kara reached over him and grabbed the metal hilt of the shovel before Brian planted a fist into her stomach, punching all the air from her lungs. She coughed as Brian got both long-fingered hands around her throat and began to squeeze. She was still trying to draw breath that would not come, but could see his eyes were blister red from the searing flux that stained his snarling face. Somehow, as the corners of her vision started going black, Kara positioned the blade of the shovel on Brian's throat. It didn't do anything, but her only way to fight was to grab the glossy mud-covered shovel hilt and try to pull herself from his grip. She pulled like she was pulling one of the radiators onto her bench. She could feel her consciousness leaving her as she couldn't breathe, but kept prying at the edge of his and her pull. Finally, she felt relief that dissolved her heavy grasp upon reality in a weightless dream world. She was aware of responsibility, of the gnawing need to come back as soon as possible, but like a baby kitten, her subconscious bounded playfully through the infinite. The cracks of awareness began to seep through. 
Her fingers were blistered, and the back of her neck hurt like it had never hurt before. The smell of feces and urine is what pushed her faster and faster back to the surface of reality, where Kara broke through and took a huge gasp of air like a swimmer that had gone far too long without breath. Sitting up, Kara saw that she was still lying on top of Brian in the hole the two had dug. It wasn't big enough for both of them to occupy. He was dead. The shovel lay awkwardly half-cut into his throat. Blood bubbled from the base of his neck and soaked his denim collar beyond his blank, staring black eyes. A permanent pained expression filled his face as he died half-decapitated and choking on his own blood as he tried to strangle her. Every slight motion felt doubly painful and heavy as Kara clambered against the muddy wall of the hole to drag herself out. She crawled several feet to get away from the rank smell of Brian's evacuated bowels and the slowly turning FBI agent that lay on the other side of the grave. As soon as she got far enough away from them, she collapsed and fell asleep until the rain picked up around a sudden cold front. Kara eventually found the strength to get back in her car and follow the tracks back to the road. She might have driven home except she didn't have enough gas. She called the police from the nearest gas station and was able to give them enough information to find where both Brian and the FBI agent were. She gave them her phone number but told them it might be a day or so before she'd be able to find the one Brian threw into the grass or get a replacement. The emergency officer made her stay on the line where she was so a police officer could get there to make a report. All she wanted to do was sleep, but she recounted the entire story at least ten more times at the police station before she was finally able to leave. She didn't get home until 11 in the evening, where she crashed for the next 12 hours. Three weeks after the event, Agent Henry Cornelius Barnes' partner, Agent Joseph Jackman, invited Kara out for a coffee or a beer, whichever she preferred. She opted for a beer. They met at a bar in Arlington where Agent Jackman pulled Kara into an unprecedented hug. When he pulled away, he apologized. You have no idea how much time, money, and effort went into finding this guy, Kara, Jackman said as the waitress led them to an empty table at the back of the bar. I can't tell you how glad I am that you made it out alive. I knew he wouldn't kill me, Kara said. You've said that multiple times on and off the record. I can't help but ask how you could possibly know that. She shook her head. I figured if he wanted to, he would have done it long before we got out into the middle of nowhere. I didn't know he was RTK, not until after I saw your partner's message. Joseph held up a hand. Do you mind if I record this conversation? Not at all, Kara shrugged. Excellent. He opened the voice memo app on his phone and hit the big red record button. Now I'm going to ask you some questions that the police probably didn't ask. Just answer as best as you can. Kara answered his questions to the best of her ability. He asked things like which direction the wind was blowing from, precise time confirmations, and specific details about what she could remember Brian saying. She found that she couldn't recall much beyond his southern accent, nothing helpful so she thought. He questioned her for at least 45 minutes before he was satisfied. Thanks for clarifying, he said. There are a number of victims' families that would like to meet you. Really? Kara felt a little uncomfortable at the prospect of this at first. Yes, most of Brian's victims were young women between the ages of 15 and 30. Some of them were mothers, some of them had boyfriends or husbands. Those are the long-term victims and all this, and rarely do those kinds of victims get the closure of knowing or meeting the person who ended the life of the monster who will never be able to take another innocent life. You're a hero, Kara. He raised his almost empty glass to her before finishing off its contents. Kara shrugged and gave a small smile. I guess when you put it like that... This concludes our bonus Thanksgiving episode. 
not a big writer of thriller fiction, but I do find it to my liking on occasion. I'll probably have another episode for you guys in a few weeks. I wonder how Nadia, Teresa, and Kayla are doing on their post-apocalyptic journey to New York City. Have they arrived yet? Let's find out together soon on the next episode of the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and edited by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support us, throw us a subscribe, good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. You can also buy my books and or audiobooks in the future from ekpublishingmedia.com. Apocalypse Theater is an EK Publishing Media production, 2019.